0: President Putin heads to Tehran for talks with Iranian and Turkish leaders. The trilateral talks will focus on Syria, but other key issues will also be addressed in the Iranian capital, the Kremlin has said. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back.
1: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour.
0: So President Putin arrived in Tehran today for talks with his Iranian counterpart, Ibrahim Raisi, and Turkish leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan. It will be his second foreign trip since the launch of the military operation in Ukraine. In late June, he visited Turkmenistan and Tajikistan to meet with country leaders and attend the sixth Caspian summit in which Iran also took part Mark, it, first of all, it, it sounds as though, or it appears as though, uh, President Putin is fairly comfortable and confident uh, the, uh, amidst all of these rumors of assassination attempts and uh, cancer threats and all these other kinds of things. He seems to be uh, fairly, fairly comfortable uh, in in traveling and meeting with world leaders.
1: Assassination attempts? I hadn't even heard that one. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah,
0: we had, uh, heard him here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Various okay.
0: diseases. He's got four or five different
2: kind of fatal diseases I, I, at the same time. I, I, of course.
1: I've heard at least 20 fatal diseases. Yeah. I found out <laughs> he's got a a trembling leg problem this morning. Monkeypox. Some kind of uh, the, the long list of ailments that the Western media uh, has uh, theorized that Putin has. i um, I haven't really seen any evidence of any of them, and I have to assume that they're basically like a wish list. <laughs> like these are the things we wish upon the Russian president. We we hope he would get. If we had the chance, we'd infect him with it, that, that sort of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean – I I haven't seen uh, any sign, uh, Putin seems, in normal form. Uh, He will be meeting not only with the Iranian uh, and Turkish presidents, but he will also be meeting with the uh, Iranian uh, supreme leader, Khomeini, as well. Um, And I mean, this is actually a fairly significant visit. There are a lot of things economically, strategically, diplomatically kicking off.
2: Let me ask you this. Um, and this is just the thoughts, and I don't know if there's anything to it. I find it interesting that he's heading there at the same time, you know, Biden just left Israel and they're like talking about they're building a Middle East, Middle East NATO. And that didn't seem to really land well. Um, plotting uh, uh, plans between Israel and the U.S. to attack Iran, all of these things going on. Is there anything to the timing of President Putin showing up when they're like threatening Iran? Does that mean anything or is it just coincidental?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it it certainly provides an excellent juxtaposition for Putin to be going to Iran right after Biden is going to uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and Israel. Um, And it shows, you know, the two powers one one still a if fading hyperpower and the other one a great power and and their geopolitical dance in the region with their their various um, relations and and allies however I, I think it can be a sometimes a a faulty prism to be looking at the rest of the world as if all of their relations revolve around what the U.S. is doing or what the U.S. president is doing. And, And like I said, it's an interesting comparison. But I think that these measures have really significant weight on their own both the, um, the, uh, Russian relations bilateral with Iran, as well as the concerns both Russia and Iran have with, uh, Turkey's increasingly bellicose, uh, pronouncements that they're going to seize more territory in Syria. And I think that that is more what's, uh, About to be headed off at the same time, Russia and Iran are on the verge of signing a new long term strategic partnership uh, agreement, uh, very similar to uh, what Iran and China have. I don't know if it will be signed uh, today, uh, but it's nearing completion. Um, uh, both sides, uh, have approved drafts of it. Um, also, um, a, a, new sea transport corridor has been kicked off where Russia through it's basically it's internal river network and the Caspian will, uh, they'll be conducting trade, uh, by ship basically from, uh, the Baltic all the way down to the Caspian, uh, and, uh, out, uh, to India. Uh, So um, it's a a pretty interesting uh, transport uh, corridor that is being opened up. Um, Gazprom is also uh, reportedly investing some $40 billion in Iran's uh, oil development which is the largest historical investment in Iran. And it's interesting that Russia is, is doing that and Gazprom is confident of doing this at a time of sanctions and conflict uh, and and all of everything else that is going on. But I mean this – Relationship has actually got to be worrying to the West because Russia is the world, has the world's largest natural gas reserves at some 24%. Number two on there at number, at at 16% is Iran. Together, that's 40% of national, national, uh, uh, of the global, uh, gas reserves. Furthermore, while, uh, the U S and Qatar rank up there, the U S gets it by fracking their own country's soil, Um, Qatar up there. But after that, the rest of that 60%, no one country has more than 1%. So it's like these four big players and everyone else. And with two of the big players forging such a close uh, military, diplomatic, economic relationship, um, it, it shows how futile the EU's attempts are going to be to find an alternate gas source.
0: Kremlin Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov says Iran is an important partner of Russia. Our relations are friendly, have a centuries-old history, and are developing very effectively in many areas. Both sides have plans to take bilateral cooperation to a new level, the level of strategic partnership. That sounds a lot like The statements that came out—and you've just said this—sounds a lot like the statements that came from uh, President Xi Jinping and President Putin. And it's a very interesting timing as uh, the United States is now talking about backing an an Israeli plan to attack Iran. I don't think that would be a very good idea
1: no i I also don't think it's going to happen Mm -hmm. either um if you see this triumvirate forming here russia's de facto military alliance the leaders of both countries have said their relationship is stronger than alliance um, uh, China's relationship with Iran was solidified in a strategic partnership um, Russia's relationship with Iran uh, you see th- basically the forming of an axis of resistance against the United States uh, as pursuit of global hegemony with these three countries right here and if there are any three countries in the world out you know out- other than than the US that you can say have truly sovereign and independent relationships, it is these three. And that's what brings them together. In fact, in a piece in an Iranian newspaper, the Russian ambassador to Iran referred to it that the Russian people and the Iranian people, we are manning the same fortress. Um, And uh, that is a very evocative language to be using.
2: Um, let me ask because and, and and it's interesting because I think Venezuela is very very powerful in, in in what we'll call and I've been saying for a while and I kind of saw it starting in South America was an anti-imperialist bloc. But let me ask you this: Turkey is an interesting country, in Erdogan. You know, it's kind of my mom used to say the main, same thing will make you laugh, will make you cry, and that's the way Erdogan is. But one thing you got to say about Erdogan: there's a certain level of independence there, if nothing else. Um, I I do believe this, that Turkey is looking at this thing from a self-serving perspective, which is reasonable for any country to say and say, I think I know who's going to come out ahead in this thing. And that's where I'm hedging my bets with your thoughts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um the relationships are complicated. That is always <laughs> the, the best way. And it's not just Russia's relationship with Turkey that is complicated. It is Iran's relationship with Turkey that is complicated. It is the U.S. relationships with uh, um, Turkey that is complicated. I think everyone has complicated relationships <laughs> with Turkey. Um, Erdogan, perhaps, I mean, the cunning beast that he is, is is perhaps best at playing his cards of playing countries against each other because of uh, Turkey's geopolitical importance to everyone. Uh, although I, I wonder uh, how how long he can continue cashing checks uh, on that ego and geopolitical value. But Russia and uh, Iran are both Both presenting very loudly to Erdogan uh, very uh, very publicly that they are against Turkey launching a new military uh, incursion into Syria to seize more territory, uh, particularly uh, the sites of of two large uh, Kurdish uh, settlements, uh, cities um, that uh, Erdogan basically wants to claim the entire length of northern Syria, 30 kilometers into it as a, quote, security zone that he uh, basically plans to ethnically cleanse of Kurds and repopulate with Sunni uh, Islamists.
0: The Financial Times and and other uh, outlets are reporting that this meeting could produce a breakthrough to end Russia's blockade of Ukraine's Black Sea ports I think we've talked about before that is, in fact, Russia blockading the port. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so the the way that that's framed is is interesting. But where do you see the, the grain talks? Uh, because, uh, again, I, I think we've talked about the fact that it's not that Russia's uh, blocking the port. It's that Ukraine has mined its own port and is refusing to provide a clear path of transit.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, once again, Russia does not have a blockade of of Ukrainian uh, grain uh, exports. It is Ukraine that has mined their own ports, and they've mined a, a dozens of foreign ships into Odessa since the beginning of the conflict. Uh, a number of those are grain ships. They can't leave. Uh, at the same time, uh, video footage has come out of uh, Kiev regime helicopters. Firing flares, uh, a a series of flares, into the grain fields of Her son. In an attempt to start fires as part of a scorched earth policy, right? Uh, Basically, the Kiev regime saying if we can't control the grain, then no one's going to get it. Uh, So you know, this is all a little facetious. Certainly, things are not going to be solved just between Russia, just between Putin and Erdogan, because uh, it is is also, of course, the EU. uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Ukraine, their U.S. and EU, uh, you know, uh, clientors uh, and the. UN is also principally involved here. So they may talk about it, but nothing crucial is going to come out of this. And once again, to me, the big issue is how is Odessa port going to be demined? Who, who is going to be doing that because Kiev doesn't have the cap- naval capabilities to do it. So um, I don't think there's going to be any resolution there that is similar um, that uh, one of the, the topics that, that Russia and Iran will certainly be talking about is the JCPOA and they will be comparing notes on their positions. Russia has long been a supporter of Iran on the JCPOA uh, position. Uh, but that things aren't going to be solved just between them because also because there's a lot of other parties involved. And it must be said that, um, you know, from a realist point of view, Russia benefits right now uh, from uh, U.S.-Iranian unwilling in, uh, you know, uncapability to resolve the JCPOA issues on sanctions because that keeps Iranian oil off the market. (laughs) <laughs> which, uh, you know, raises the price, uh, raises the price <laughs> of oil and keeps Russia's place of leverage. So, um, you know, uh, if it was resolving the Iranian issue, that's a bigger geopolitical thing. And I'm sure Russia, you know, would back Iran if there was an end in sight to the J.C.U.P.A., if the U.S. was willing to lift sanctions enough uh, to at least begin a process. But that's not happening. And I, I don't think that Russia's going to go to create any Effort, efforts diplomatically to try to push the U.S. on it right now, because right now they're not even speaking diplomatically to the U.S. Uh, Antony Blinken hasn't spoken with the Russian foreign minister uh, since Russia's intervention began. So I don't think that's going to go anywhere either.
0: Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Russia orders troops to target Ukraine's Western-supplied weapons. They've ordered its forces to target the long-range missiles and artillery weapons that Western countries have recently sh- supplied to Ukraine, a sign of how Kiev's additional firepower has begun to reshape the conflict. We are joined by an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Dr. David Walalu, As always, David, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you, Walmart. So it's reported that yesterday, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu told a group of Russian troops to make Ukraine's long-range weaponry a priority target to prevent shelling in parts of eastern Ukraine held by Russian forces. So talk about what does this signal? We've been hearing a lot about Zelensky requesting uh, more uh, sophisticated weaponry the United States and NATO supplying more sophisticated weaponry, but it seems to all be for (laughs) naught, Dr. David Wallalu.
3: Well, uh, actually, you're right, Walmart, because that's sophisticated, and I put this in quote, that supposedly sophisticated weapons end up not being used to begin with. And this is why the Russians are targeting those weapons. That tells me something else, which has to do with their Intelligence apparatus, that's how good they are, because if they are able to allocate or or locate, rather, where those weapons are, and that's exactly what happened when uh, the Russians destroyed the, the HIMARS, which is the high mobility artillery rocket system, which is considered sort of a sophisticated type, but they were able to do this. And by the way, who reported that, this is not about coming from, for example, TAS, the agency that is affiliated with Russia. It came from a newsweek here in the United States. So the report suggests that indeed the Russians are targeting those weapons that they have been sent. The second part to that, if I may quickly here, it has to do with, uh, and, and I've been arguing this since the beginning. My big concern at that time was that the weapons that the West promising to uh, pro- has promised to Ukraine to has promised to send to Ukraine might not end up in Ukraine in the first place. And this is what's taking place right now in one part of the Middle East. It has to do with northern part of Syria. There is one region that is called Babel And Babel Hour is known for the transfer of weapons. So it makes me wonder, the weapons that the West, we are sending to Ukraine, might end up being in Syria in the first place.
2: Looking at this also, you know, I think to myself, let's just say you said, Garland Nixon, you're going to box Mike Tyson. Okay, I'm going to get knocked out. But we're going to give you the finest gloves. I'm still getting knocked out. Oh, with shoes. How about some great shoes? And I'm getting knocked out because I'm fighting Mike Tyson. The idea that the reality of the difference between Russia's military power and Ukraine's military power the idea that you could give them some magic weapons and this is the one that's going to make a difference it to me is absurd this it seems to me it's more like a propaganda thing for the people at home to say we're giving them more weapons because if you know anything about the military you have to know that Russia has total pretty much total um, control of the skies, which means that this kind of this thing's pretty much been over for a while in, in, in real time military uh, uh, conflict on the ground. Your thoughts?
3: Well, you hit the nail on the head, Garland. I mean, that's exactly what is taking place. But also, as I mentioned earlier, it gives me an idea for you listeners to even understand. This is also the military intelligence part of it. And Russians tend to be good when it comes down to spying and military and all the, uh, the military apparatus uh, uh, as a whole. So this, that's why I'm not surprised when, well, for example, the weapons we donated to the Ukraine, uh, especially by the port of, I believe in, in the city of Odessa, they were targeted right there on the airfield. And I did see the footage for those missiles that were launched today, so this is not some kind of propaganda, whatever. I did say that, see that, and I kind of uh, I don't speak till I know it's factual. And this is where the idea of saying, "Well, I keep sending weapons for what?" The outcome has already been decided. And like you said, uh, Galen, it's it's it, it, it's perfect analogy. You know, are you gonna fight Mike Tyson? No. Yeah, you're not gonna win no matter what. It's just the way it is.
0: Well, it's interesting because the story we opened with Russia orders troops to target Ukraine's Western-supplied weapons. It's a it's a Reuters story, and they make this out to be as though. Ukraine is making progress, and because that these weapons are enabling the Ukraine to make progress, and because Ukraine is making progress, now Russia has to strike these weapons depots because of this progress. Well, first of all, (laughs) Russia's doing what you're supposed to do in a conflict, which is eliminate any level or, or ability of strength that your opposition has, and... Yeah, a couple missiles have been sent. Yeah, a couple Russian targets have been hit. But it's already game over. So, you know, Dr. willalu Well,
3: you're right. I mean, will I trust the Ukrainian government's report? I mean, I'll just let your listeners know. For example, the uh, I believe it was July 9th report, which came, by the way, or was issued, rather, by the U.N., which says that ukraine forces were complicit in the nursing home attacks do you remember that that one guy
4: mm. when, when yes. they're
3: saying that it was the russia that targeted it was not russia it was ukraine so what will i trust what the ukrainian government is saying about well now the missiles gonna make a difference no it won't and they are not making a difference you know, as a matter of fact russia made it clear they are moving forward and 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 the outcome has already been decided so this is why now What you're noticing right now in Europe is that there is this uh, conversation behind closed doors as to the fatigue of the Ukraine is soon going to be coming from the United States. So you start to have now a conversation again behind closed doors. Europeans, as divided as it can be. You're, I'm sure you, got, you heard about the, how, for example, the Italian economy is collapsing before our own eyes. Mm-hmm. The Germans, the Dutch, they all are realizing, some uh, Eastern, Eastern European uh, countries under the table, they are saying this is going the wrong direction and we don't want to be part of it. So, so despite what they're saying about the weapons, no, it's not making any difference on the tier.
0: And I just want to reiterate this point. We've been talking about it, Garland, for about a week or so. Front page of the Washington Post: Ukraine is not there. Climate change is the lead story. <laughs> no, uh, January sixth committee hearings. Uvalde massacre. Uh, <laughs> Results of the uh, Wizard Summer League games. This, you know the this, <laughs> this woman kissing an emu. And that's big news. Yes, yeah, big news. And Steve Bannon. Yeah. Uh, Ukraine is Doesn't not, exist. There. It's not there. Wow.
2: Let me ask you this. Uh, there's another story. Zelensky fires Intel chief for failing to identify traitors. U.S. says uh-huh. it will continue to pass Kiev intelligence, although we're hearing some other rumors that some that <laughs> bad things could have possibly almost happened to uh, Zelensky. Rumors? We don't know anything for sure yet. But uh, what are you hearing, uh, Dr. Balalu? What are your thoughts about the uh, Intel? And then we Hear the intel chief wasn't fired; that he was just temporarily suspended. There's some rumors floating around. There's suspicious stuff going on in Kiev. Your thoughts?
3: Well, to my knowledge, is that the head of the SBU, which is the uh, Security Service Agency or the spy agency for Ukraine, was let go, was dismissed from his possession. and this one has to do, as they say, the infiltration of a of a Russian agency. Well. Uh, Ukrainian uh, agency is not going to be able to manage, I mean, if the U.S. with all its resources, that's one we have in the intelligence community, and we do find it very challenging to, Russians are good. I'm not saying they can, uh, but they are good. They are good when it comes down to, they understand how, how the intelligence of the spine uh, game is, is played. So I'm not surprised at this because uh, it's no different than what we had in Iraq. Well, in Iraq, I remember when I used to go, you know, the the intelligence service of the Iraqi uh, government was infiltrated infiltrated by the Iranians so easily. So this is no different. You know, Russians will have that or do have that capability to do that. Uh, uh, Will I go as far as even targeting uh, Zelensky himself? Uh, Possibly, possibly not. To them, that's... There, there is much bigger geopolitical game than just targeting one individual. So, but this is the reason why they are saying, well, did this, "Well, they were dismissed. Yes, they were dismissed because their their service was infiltrated."
0: What about this paragraph? While Kiev is concerned about Moscow's infiltration of its intelligence agency, the White House says that will not prevent the U.S. from passing intelligence to Ukraine. We are in daily contact with our Ukrainian partners. We invest not in personalities. We invest in institutions, according to Ned Price. Does that signal anything to you or is that just more political banter from the State Department?
3: I just bravado. Because they are realizing it's a losing game, especially if you enter into the sphere of the intelligence apparatus. That's a different ball game altogether. Do you know that it's Russia's sphere of influence there? They understand the, 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 the climate. When I say climate I'm referring to all of its social, cultural, uh, ethnic and all that, they understand it far better than we do. And Not only that, this will give you an idea about why, for example, William Burns had to go to Azerbaijan uh, only uh, two days after the head of the Iranian intelligence took a trip and also after the Russian intelligence, uh, the head of the Russian intelligence, the FSB, it's going to be there. That tells me right there uh, the, the statements, of course, to show that the U.S. is still in play when it comes down to the intelligence. But as to the actionable one on the ground, no, they couldn't do that. Otherwise, why would Ukraine uh, uh, Zelensky will fire the, the head of the SBU Besides the other issue of Zelensky himself being targeted?
2: Uh, we got about two minutes. Your thoughts on President Putin's trip to Iran?
3: Oh, that's very, very crucial, very important. That has to do with two main issues. One of them has to do with the, uh, uh, the grain that the Turkey is going to play a role in allowing it through the Black Sea, except that Moscow is making it clear no conditions will be put by any other nation uh, or nations for that matter. Second thing has to do with Iran itself, because Russia and Iran signed uh, a deal for five years or 25 years, whatever that was, a major deal that tackles the energy sector. And all this comes on the heels of China and Russia putting the ground for the new pipeline by 2024.
0: And one minute, Turkey, Erdogan renews threat to block Sweden and Finland from NATO membership. At the end of the day, do you think that Erdogan will relent or do you think that, or acquiesce, or do you think that... uh, that he's going to hold his ground? I
3: think he's going to hold firm because Mm. today, today, the Swedish court, uh, their their highest court, whatever, refused to extradite the individuals to to Turkey. So, and that's why I said at the beginning, Uh, Turkey will be making a big mistake if they think that Sweden is going to extradite. They won't because Sweden falls under the human rights for the EU Mm -hmm. and, and that's going to be an issue. So my belief is they're going to block the admission of Sweden yeah, and Finland, for that matter,
0: NATO. Dr. David Walalu. as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Israeli army's main focus is preparations against Iran's nuclear program, while the chief of uh, staff says Israeli military says main focus is preparations to strike Iran. The head of the defense Israeli Defense Forces said yesterday that the Israeli military's main focus is Preparations to Attack Iran's Nuclear Program. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's the co-founder of Code Pink, Medea Benjamin. As always, Medea, welcome back.
5: Hey, thanks. Nice to be on with you.
0: So what is all of this uh, chatter really signaling, since we know from a number of sources, such as the CIA, as well as the United Nations, that Iran is not developing a military weapon uh, nuclear program?
5: Well, I really don't know that that is true, because I think as the U.S. has pushed Iran, uh, it went from... Uh, not developing a nuclear weapon, to maybe thinking, uh, aha, this is the only way that we don't get invaded. So they are coming closer and closer and say they now have the capability of a nuclear weapon. And I think as the U.S. continues to not uh, sign a new deal and be hostile in so many different ways in the region against Iran— Um, I'm sure, in fact, I know there are people inside Iran who think, hey, uh, we should get a nuclear weapon.
2: You know, and uh, here's the other part of it right now the last thing we need on this in this world is a war in the Middle East as if there aren't enough problems the u.s is very dangerously um, confronting China on their home turf Taiwan Russia their home turf Ukraine they're on the borders of all of these powerful world world powers you know and causing a whole lot of discontent and here's the area where the oil and everything comes out should they start this thing and the oil infrastructure gets all blown to smithereens, you basically throw the entire world into a horrific, um, uh, you know, depression of some time, some type. This is uh, extremely irresponsible and dangerous. Medea.
5: Absolutely. I mean, look at the consequences of the war in Ukraine that people are feeling all over the world. Uh, Just imagine if it was in a part of the world where most of the oil is being shipped from, uh, it would be disastrous on so many different levels. And I just don't know how Biden and the Biden administration have managed to put themselves or put all of us uh, in this situation when it could have been so easily avoided. And now to be making these alliances with uh, the the despotic regimes in the Middle East to, uh, to line up against Iran uh, is... Um, Uh, is so irresponsible and so dangerous uh, that I don't know how we can put pressure on this administration after more than a year uh, to say, get us back into the darn deal.
0: So who do you think he's listening to and what do you think their primary objectives are?
5: Certainly there are war hawks that he has put in his own administration, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, there are the Israelis who never wanted this deal to begin with and always wanted the U.S. to uh, bomb Iran's nuclear uh, research facilities. And uh, there are the Saudis who are actually less hawkish right now because they know uh, how disastrous it would be for Saudi Arabia. Um, and uh, these are some of the array. Now, you also have very strong lobby groups like APAC. Uh, that have so many of our U.S. Congress people in their pockets, uh, and that's another very strong influence in keeping us out of the deal.
2: So, you know, what are your thoughts here? I mean, the U.S. and Israel have been, you know— you know, saber-rattling for a long time, saber-rattling for many years. And, uh, you know, the fear is that something will kick off. But do you think this is more saber-rattling? Uh, uh, and let me add this, uh, add something to it. Recently, we find out that both Iran and Saudi Arabia have applied to be part of the BRICS organization and that Iran and Saudi Arabia have been doing some background, um, you know, some backroom, you um, a uh, diplomacy to try to bury the hatchet, shall we say? Do you think that um, there's some credibility to this, or do you think they're still saber rattling? I don't know. Maybe that's a bad question.
5: Well, there certainly is um, saber rattling when you hear uh, Biden on an interview in Israel saying that uh, the nuclear, uh, the military option is an option, and uh, you know, let's remember in all of this, make sure that your listeners. Uh, keep in the forefront of their minds that uh, Israel is a nuclear power, and uh, of course the United States is, but this idea that um, it's Israel that's dictating uh, U.S. policy towards Iran uh, when Israel won't even declare that it has nuclear weapons is seen in a lot of the world as the utmost hypocrisy. But in any case, yes, it's saber-rattling, but You know, the Iranians are a very proud people, and their government is really wondering, is it worth it for us to be in this deal or not? And one of the reasons that they are wondering is because Biden can't make any kind of commitment on behalf of the U.S. government, not knowing who's going to be in power uh, after the next elections. And so there are many hardliners, more conservatives in Iran, who said, Um, You know, this is ridiculous to negotiate with the United States. We make a deal, they pull out of it, and what's to say that this next one won't be the same?
0: So last week, uh, President Biden goes to Israel and and other countries in the Middle East, followed right after he leaves with uh, President Putin in Iran. And the Russian government makes the statement that Iran is an important partner of Russia. Our relations are friendly, have a centuries-old history, and are developing very effectively in many areas. Uh, And and they are expected to uh, release a joint statement at the end of the meetings. So what does it say to you, if anything, that right after Biden leaves, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, meets in Israel to meet not only – uh, with, with, um, with the Iranians, but, uh, but the Turks as well?
5: Well, it shows that there are, is a correlation of forces lining up uh, in the Middle East and the broader area uh, to counter the United States, and that uh, this is not the moment in history where the United States uh, can dictate to the whole world. Uh, Iran is a very big, powerful country with 80 million people, uh, and, of course, you know, Russia, Turkey, they're big countries. Uh, I think the U.S. is not yet recognized uh, that it can't uh, dictate policy around the world anymore. Um, but these uh, um, leaders and countries that are sick and tired of uh, the U.S. trying to do that are coming together and forming alliances to counter U.S. hegemony.
2: Well, you know, Medea, one of the things that you've done a lot of work on and I think is important, that is partially that is one of the I think main factors driving this is the issue this is the issue of sanctions in that if you look at the countries that are coming together overwhelmingly now in opposition to the to, to the US um, they're countries that have been heavily sanctioned the United States has sanctioned itself into a corner where there's so many countries that are powerful countries populist countries that are sanctioned by the United States that they have um, a strong reason to come together and when they come together they're going to have a huge market and a lot of industrial and commodity power. Medea.
5: Well, yes, and these are starting to backfire like we see the sanctions on Russia are affecting more uh, Europe and even the U.S. um, than they are the Russians at this point. We also see that many countries around the world are pulling out the reserves they have had in U.S. banks because they don't want to be uh, subject to the freezing of their assets like the US has done in freezing the assets of Afghanistan the Af- assets of uh, Venezuela and of course the assets of Russia
0: and as you look at the uh, coalition whether it be NATO whether it be the EU uh you look at what's happening in terms of these sanctions and the impact that uh, uh is having on economies in Italy having on economies in Germany and and France it seems as though it's only a matter of time before they start turning on the United States because winter's coming. They're going to need gas. The, uh, and people are going to need to be able to heat their homes, and businesses are going to be, are going to, uh, 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 factories are going to have to be able to run their plants.
5: That's right. Um, the U.S. Uh, and, and Europe are really implementing policies that go against their own people. We see the price of gasoline right now and how uh, upset people are about that, inflation in the grocery store. But in Europe, it can be really bad uh, this coming winter when there might not be gas to heat people's homes. And so, um, you know, this is going to have repercussions at the national level in each of the countries where leaders are going to have to respond and be accountable to their people for Policies that are putting their uh, lives in jeopardy
2: and and the, here's another thing that I think is important too. Everything that's going on here, I mean, the Biden came in talking about green this and that and a green agenda and addressing climate change and all that kinds of stuff. That's all gone. Now he's there begging for more oil. The, any discussion of addressing climate change, any discussion of anything green, of trying to work towards a renewable energy, all of that stuff is out the window, as a re, in my opinion, as a result of an aggressive militaristic foreign policy. Medea.
5: Well, yes, it's also the result of very conservative Democrats in the Senate that won't even let um, very mild bills be passed. Uh, And now we see as a result of the increase of uh, the shortage of uh, gasoline and oil uh, that there are there's a um, a renewed emphasis on fossil fuels, including uh, Germany, for example, going back to coal um, the United States pumping oil in places that were supposed to be prohibited. Uh, and the, uh, the big oil is really benefiting tremendously. And of course, countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, that, um, are such good allies of the United States, uh, now have more money than they know what to do with. While the green agenda, you would think with Europe, burning and uh, fires breaking out all over the world because the uh, level of uh, uh, the heat is just unbearable, um, that this would be the moment to say, okay, you know, we're going to take that trillions of dollars that we, we as a world spend on the military and instead invest in saving our planet. But unfortunately, that's not happening
0: and there are reports that biden is considering declaring a climate emergency uh i don't know how much of that is just chatter it seems as though once again he's butting heads with joe manchin don't know whether joe manchin is the is the stalking horse on this one um as they as they may very well try to give joe biden an out for not uh uh implementing uh, or declaring an executive order, but there is some discussion that the White House is facing mounting pressure to take unilateral climate action. We have just about 30 seconds.
5: Well, he should declare a climate emergency because there is objectively a climate emergency, but Biden has been so mild in everything that he does, uh, not taking bold actions to protect women's right to choose or our health care system or our climate Uh, that I don't put any faith in him doing the right thing.
0: Medea Benjamin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
5: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a piece entitled Palestinians Face Forced Expulsions as Biden Pledges Allegiance to Israel. According to our next guest, during his visit, the U.S. president ignored the exclusion of the Palestinian people from Israel's quote-unquote democracy. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's a Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild and a member of the National Advisory Boards of Assange Defense and Veterans for Peace and the Bureau of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. And she's the author of this piece. Professor Marjorie Cohn, as always, welcome back.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: So you write, uh, President Joe Biden's much-heralded visit to Jerusalem has confirmed that the United States remains Israel's enabler-in-chief. Biden promised to continue providing Israel with $3.8 billion in annual military aid, more than the U.S. gives any other country, to maintain the illegal Israeli occupation of Palestinian territory. Professor Cohn, how do we square that reality with the rhetoric that Joe Biden Uh, was 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 championing on the campaign trail and what he says in so many of his speeches about sovereignty and human rights and individual freedom and people's voices should be heard in the context of uh, of the of the democratic experience how do we how do we square how do we square that circle
6: well joe biden is concerned about human rights as long as they don't run afoul of the u.s uncritical support for Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, I I might add as well. Um, Biden, when he arrived in at the airport, Ben-Gurion Airport, um, he said he pledged to stand with the Jewish and democratic state of Israel. Well, that, that sounds very good, except that Biden ignored the fact that um, Israel's so-called democracy excludes Palestinians from enjoying the democratic rights. Uh, they, apply, they apply only to Jewish people. And as Amnesty International Human Rights Watch and the Israeli human rights group Betselem recently affirmed Israel is an apartheid state.
2: You know, um, and 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 also looking at this now, I, and there I've found things just in this show and covering Israel. I found things that I found unbelievable that I didn't know, such as and you may know more about this. These um, detentions where the Israelis not only do the Palestinians not have um, rights of democracy, but basic human rights, where they can be arrested without charge and held indefinitely, and in many instances they suffer brutal actions against them when they're being questioned.
6: Yes, you're talking about administrative detentions which violate all principles of due process in the U.S. and in international treaties, um, and they can be held with on the basis of secret evidence, so they don't even have a right to see the evidence against them. And as you say, they're often uh, mistreated, tortured, uh, subjected to cruel treatment, and there are thousands of Palestinian political prisoners in this administrative detention status. Um, which certainly does not square with Biden's so called commitment to human rights.
0: In response to your point about Biden saying his commitment to human rights and his commitment to democracy, that's interesting because that now is going to find itself being challenged domestically as the right to boycott is likely headed to the Supreme Court after a court of appeals in Arkansas, upheld in Arkansas law restricting contractors from boycotting Israel. So now, it, I don't think I need to elaborate. I'll let you run with it from there.
6: Well, you're talking about the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which was is a nonviolent movement started by Palestinian civil society um, to end the occupation, to pressure Israel economically to end the occupation, and in fact, Ben and Jerry's was boycotting uh, the occupied West Bank and not selling ice cream there. That's that's a, a famous um, action in support of this BDS. And state after state in the United States, contrary to the U.S. Uh, fine tradition of boycotts, which is a First Amendment protected activity, boycotts of South Africa, boycotts um, uh, by the farm workers, boycotts during the civil rights movement. Um, There are states that are criminalizing support for this BDS movement and in fact when Joe Biden met with the Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid they signed what is called a Jerusalem U.S. Israel strategic partner partnership joint declaration where they quote affirm that they will continue to work together to combat all efforts to boycott or delegitimize Israel. So this is a, they are taking direct aim at the BDS movement in this joint declaration.
0: There's another piece after visit, Palestinians say Biden presidency is like the Trump years with a smile. And it's, it's interesting that that I think is a very uh, apt or accurate assessment. And again, we can't square the campaign rhetoric with the Biden administration policy initiatives. The first, this was in Common Dreams. Palestinians offered a dour assessment of U.S. President Biden's policy agenda and track record thus far in the wake of his brief visit to the Israeli occupied territory last week, with one official describing the administration as like the Trump years with a smile. We're getting more Trumpian policy in the Biden administration than we got in the Trump administration.
6: Well, that's interesting you mentioned that, and I do want to talk about Iran because it interestingly Israel sees the BDS movement and Iran as the two existential threats that it faces, even though Iran has not attacked any other country in decades um, and is not developing a nuclear weapon. And in fact, uh, during the Obama administration in 2015, there was Uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the shorthand, is the Iran nuclear deal. And what happened during that deal is that Iran agreed to cut back its nuclear program. It doesn't have nuclear weapons, but any nuclear program. And in return, the U.S. would lift billions of dollars of punishing sanctions against Iran. Um, And in fact, that nuclear deal was succeeding in preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. But in 2018, Donald Trump withdrew the U.S. from that agreement. Now, um, during his campaign biden committed to rejoining that iran deal but a year and a half into his term not only has he failed to return the u.s to the iran deal biden has also imposed additional sanctions on iran shamefully cap- uh, capitulating to israeli pressure and also other things that biden pledged to do to reverse uh, trump policies which biden has failed to do are, first of all, he, uh, Trump illegally recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, Biden has not withdrawn that illegal recognition, nor has Biden rescinded Trump's declaration that illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank are legitimate. And he has not reopened, Biden has not reopened the Palestinian mission in Washington, um, and he also uh, pledged to reopen a U.S. consulate in East Jerusalem, which was basically a de facto embassy for the Palestinians before Trump closed it three years ago. He hasn't done that either. Um, he hasn't called to cut off the supply of arms to the Israeli military. Uh, and in fact, last in May of last year, As the Israeli military was bombing Gaza, the Biden administration approved the sale of $735 million worth of so-called precision-guided weapons to Israel. And what the Biden administration is doing is continuing the U.S. policy of opposing bringing Israeli leaders to justice in the International Criminal Court. There is a formal investigation pending in that court um, against Israelis and some Palestinians for committing war crimes, including the building of illegal settlements on Palestinian land. And yet, Um, Whereas the Biden administration and all hundred senators, who can't agree on anything, U.S. senators, um, are urging the ICC, the International Criminal Court, to investigate Russia for its war crimes in Ukraine. Um, It's good enough for Russia, uh, the ICC, but not good enough to try Israeli leaders or even U.S. leaders for war crimes committed in Afghanistan. So it's a real double standard. Uh, Biden is continuing the abominable U.S. uncritical um, policy uh, uh, in favor of Israel. And in fact, another thing uh, that I want to mention is that APEC, which is the primary Israel lobby in the U.S., uh, PACs Um, political action committees led by APEC are spending huge amounts of money to defeat Democratic congressional candidates who are at all critical of the U.S. support for Israel.
2: You know, when we mention Trump, we mention Biden, and we see these consistent policies, it makes me think this isn't about Trump or Biden. This is about simply this is U.S. policy. Two minutes.
6: It is U.S. policy, absolutely, and every president, uh, and Obama included, have uncritically supported Israel. In fact, under the Obama administration, um, they increased the amount of military aid that the U.S. is giving to Israel. Uh, and I think you mentioned that. It is $3.8 billion a year more than the U.S. gives any other country. And without that money, Israel could not maintain its illegal occupation of Palestinian territory. And in fact, uh, Biden has given additional money, as I said, um, to the Israeli military last may and uh, and continues to provide uncritically provide this means giving Israel the means to um, not just uh, maintain its illegal occupation, but also um, oppress the Palestinians uh, in this so-called democracy that exists in Israel, um, and maintain this policy, as you mentioned, of administrative detention being held without charges, um, being held on the basis of secret evidence, being tortured. And this is what our tax dollars are supporting
0: as well as weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. Marjorie Cohn, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
6: Thanks so much, Wilmer and Garland.
0: Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, Alba TCP Criticizes New U.S. Sanctions Against Nicaragua. Saturday, July 17th, the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America, People's Trade Treaty, ALBA-TCP rejected new unilateral coercive measures imposed by the United States against Nicaraguan officials. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a U.S. labor and human rights lawyer, writer, and activist. He's been a peace activist throughout his life. He's been deeply involved in the movement for peace and social justice in Colombia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and other countries in the global South. Uh, He's taught international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law since 2012. Uh, and he joins us from Nicaragua, Dan Kovalik. Dan, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So uh, first of all, let's start with uh, you're on the ground. Uh, you're there celebrating a, a very significant anniversary in Nicaragua. What's going on?
7: Yeah, so today is July 19th, and this is the 43rd anniversary of the Sandinista overthrow of the U.S.-backed dictator, Anastasio Somoza. And this is uh, really the biggest day of the year here in Nicaragua. And there have been actually celebrations for a few weeks now. Uh, But today's the big one. It will be in the Plaza of the Revolution. This is where the revolutionaries gathered when uh, they triumphed on July 19th, 1979. And it's a very, very exciting and uh, and, and really sacred day here in Nicaragua.
2: You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and that is um, I know that Nicaragua paid a heavy price for their freedom. And I heard some numbers upwards of 20 or 30,000 people or something died in a, um, you know, um, in a country of like six million people. And they suffered, you know, the whole Contra thing. If you could give people a brief update on what the Nicaraguan people had to endure in order to get their independence.
7: Yeah, and we actually talked about this yesterday with some journalists who were trying to make the point, and I agree with them, that really they've suffered more than even countries like Cuba and Venezuela. So in the final year before Samosa was overthrown, so in, in uh, 1978 till, till July of 79, Samosa killed 50,000 people, at that time out of a population of less than 3 million And most were killed through aerial bombings. He bombed his own cities indiscriminately. And then when the Sandinistas came to power, as you know, the U.S. quickly organized the Contras, which was really a terrorist group that attacked Nicaragua for the next 10 years. And 30,000 Nicaraguans died in the Contra War. So you're looking at a total of eighty thousand people again during that time uh, in a country of less than three million people. Those numbers are staggering. In fact, I remember when I was an activist in the '80s, they said, "Well, even just in the cultural war alone, the proportion would would exceed." the proportion of Americans killed in every war from the Civil War up to that point.
0: So looking at it now through the most current lens in terms of the political developments, in terms of elections and what has happened recently, uh, I would think that that adds uh, an additional level of validity to this July 19th celebration.
7: Yeah, well, they they understand that they're under constant attack, that they always are in a, a period of vigilance to defend the revolution. And yes, it does make every July 19th even that more important because the independence was hard earned and the U.S. has never given up trying to overthrow this government. And as you say, they've just imposed new sanctions. I think this is at least the third, maybe fourth round of sanctions on Nicaragua since 2018. And these are aimed at the economy. They're aimed at uh, preventing Nicaragua from getting international financing, which even the World Bank and IMF recognize they've effectively used to decrease poverty here. Um, And that's, you know, the U.S. is going after that financing um, so they know that they're under, uh, you know, uh, attack every day, and uh, you know to be able to celebrate on a day like this is they they don't take it for granted. Let's put it that it's not like July Fourth in the U.S., which might as well be called uh, Firecracker Day, right? <laughs> um, right? It doesn't have any particular political uh, import to anyone. Um, but, you know, the independence here, it, it really does matter to people.
2: You know, um, one of the things that we, 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 you know, we've been discussing recently is President Putin's trip to Iran today. And to me, I, you know, there's a lot of discussion about anti-imperialist blocks forming that is including that that uh, I'll put it like this. South America, Latin America, Central America are a very important part of that. I'm hearing that, you um, Nicaragua is considering signing some kind of a trade agreement with Iran. How has Nicaragua's associations with countries outside of the region, powerful countries such as Iran, such as uh, uh, China, Russia, etc., And I'm saying uh, Nicaragua, I understand, is signing a free trade agreement with possibly China. How has their association with other anti-imperialist co- imperialist countries around the, um, around the world affected their ability to cope with U.S. sanctions?
7: Well, it's it's been absolutely critical, and it needs to be pointed out that while the U.S. will now say, oh, we have to sanction Nicaragua because they're cozying up to China and Russia and Iran, the only reason Nicaragua's done that is because of the sanctions, right? I mean, uh, the Nicar- Nicaragua up till uh, late last year didn't even recognize the People's Republic of China. They recognized Taiwan. And they didn't have, uh, you know, after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, they didn't have much of a relationship with Russia either or Iran particularly. But it's all changed because the U.S. sanctioned them and made them. It became just absolutely necessary that they find financing trade uh, and assistance outside the U.S. I mean, and again, they were forced into that. You know, this is a very... uh, you know, this is a country they still love Americans. They love the U.S. still, despite everything. You know, this is not a big soccer country. This They love baseball here, you know. Um, and yet we have done everything we can to attack these people and alienate them. And, yeah, they've had to reach out to the east now.
0: So at the opening of this, uh, of this interview, we talked about ALBA, TCP, criticizing new sanctions against Nicaragua. Uh, The Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of our America People's Trade Treaty rejected new unilateral coercive measures imposed by the United States against Nicaraguan officials. Uh, Apparently, there's new aggression towards 23 judges and prosecutors in Nicaragua. What's going on here and why?
7: Well, again, I mean, basically, the U.S. is finding ways to punish Nicaragua for being independent for being successful uh in going its own way towards development and uh, they will not stop um you know trying to overthrow the government here and that's what these sanctions are about you know these sanctions they're always they always claim to be aimed towards individuals okay but that's not really how they work what they do is they put a lot of pressure on companies and private individuals to not do any business with Nicaragua because they fear they don't understand what how broad the sanctions are or, or not, and everyone knows this by the way. I mean this is talked about all the time how even you know all these sanctions technically allow for you know certain humanitarian aid, but people don't even want to give that because they they they're just afraid of being fined or thrown in jail. And, and and so they overcomply. So overcompliance is a very well-known problem with these sanctions. And it's an intentional problem. That is to say the U.S. for political purposes can't officially uh, uh, sanction humanitarian aid, but they darn well know that when they impose these types of sanctions, people are going to overcomply and not send that humanitarian aid. And so, you know, the whole point, Uh, To put a finer point on it is to make the people here suffer and hope that they either overthrow the government or if not, at least they're suffering and therefore they're being punished for their
0: insolence. Yes, Uh, which, by the way, violates international law, of course.
7: Well, absolutely. I mean, because none of this is is approved by the U.N. Security Council And uh, the U.N. has been very clear that uh, these types of sanctions are unlawful, that it's only the Security Council that can approve these types of sanctions.
2: You know, if you search Daniel Ortega online on Google, one of the things you'll find is these constant references to him um, oppressing his political opposition, arresting political opposition. My understanding of this is that they passed a law similar to our Farah law that requires – Um, NGOs to expose where they're getting foreign money, that uh, that these uh, uh, opposition organizations are getting foreign money from the CIA so they can't so they can't come out and say it and they end up getting
7: shut down. Am I wrong? Well, that's part of it. Absolutely. Uh, But even worse, some of those people have actively plotted to violently overthrow the government. And so in 2018, between April and July of 2018, there was a mass violent insurrection in Nicaragua that the U.S. supported. 200 people were killed, and the goal was to overthrow the government. And what happened was initially the government and Danny Ortega gave a broad amnesty to people who participated in it. But on the condition that they stop doing it, that they stop committing violent acts of treason, which in any country would be prosecuted, you know, prosecuted either by jail or, frankly, by a firing squad. But they don't have the death penalty here. Um, But the people, some of the people never stopped. They continued to plot with the U.S. to overthrow the government. Those people been arrested and and. People here, by and large, are very happy they were arrested. They're tired of uh, people plotting against their duly elected government. And by the way, Ortega now has close to 80% approval, according to the MNR consulting poll that was done here 80%. And again, it's only increased because he has finally gone after people that are trying to stop the progress here and who are. You know they're they're treasonous. No no country would put up with the things that that this government, frankly, has put up with for too long. And finally, they said that's enough. Eighty-one
2: percent approval. I mean, eighty percent. He's one percent behind uh, Vladimir Putin. Boy, it's amazing how these evil dictators. The people sure like them.
0: And fifty percent ahead of Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, uh,
7: yeah, this. and I can tell you how the the enthusiasm <laughs> I, I've seen in this country in these last couple of days for this anniversary celebration. I've never seen it before. And I've been here coming here since 1987. People are feeling an incredible relief, uh, in part because they wanted these coup plotters put in jail and to stop causing trouble. And so people are feeling honestly free and unmolested at this point.
0: We have just about a minute and a half and talking about coup plotters. Venezuela condemns Washington coup plots as Bolton doubles down, Bolton stood by his comments about Venezuela saying the wa- that Washington support for coup plots was necessary to protect US interests. How dangerous and irresponsible is it for John Bolton to be engaging in this type of dialogue even though he's stating the obvious. We got a minute.
7: Yeah, I mean I suppose it's dangerous that he's saying it. I mean obviously you shouldn't be calling for the overthrow of foreign governments, but honestly, it's a bit refreshing that he's telling the truth. I mean uh, you know, again, when when they had the coup attempt here in 2018, everyone said, oh, Danny Ortega is paranoid. There's no coup. And, you know, and then you have people like John Bolton admitting that they're engaged in coups against against countries he named Venezuela. But we know also against Nicaragua. So, um, you know, honestly, I welcome the truth. The, the, the problem isn't that he said it. The problem is that he tried to do it and that the U.S. is continuing to, to try to overthrow governments throughout the world.
0: Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. Be safe, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, my friends. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Chris Hedges has a piece in Consortium News, War with Iran. The United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, responsible for military fiascos, hundreds of thousands of deaths, and innumerable war crimes in the Middle East are now plotting to attack Iran. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest, He's an author and journalist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. Robert Fantina, as always, Robert, welcome back.
4: Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here.
0: So Chris Hedges writes, the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia, they're plotting a war with Iran, the 2015 Iranian nuclear arms accord or joint comprehensive plan of action – which Donald Trump sabotaged, does not look like it will be revived. U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, is reviewing options to attack if Tehran looks poised to obtain a nuclear weapon, and Israel, which opposes U.S.-Iran nuclear negotiations, carries out military strikes. Robert, your thought about all of this and the thing that strikes me about this position is that if Tehran looks poised to obtain a nuclear weapon, that's not going to happen. The CIA has said there's no evidence to support this. The UN uh, weapons inspectors have said there's no evidence to support this. The uh, Ayatollah Khomeini has issued a fatwa saying, we're not going to allow this because it violates the tenets of Islam, and with uh, Iran as, an, as a, a theocracy, that carries a lot of weight. As I've said on the show a number of times, they might as well say, well, if, Te- if Tehran decides they're going to use zombies on the, uh, on the battlefield, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. But it's not, it's not going
4: to happen, but that isn't what's of concern to the United States and Israel. Uh, what's of concern to them is that Iran is a powerful nation, and that is not allowed. Iran and Israel do not have good relations. Uh, they did under the Shah of Iran, the, puppet, the brutal puppet government of, uh, of Iran. But when that was overthrown in the 70s, uh, the government of Iran severed ties with uh, Israel and recognized Palestine. This is not pleasing to the United States and Israel. Israel wants to be the only nuclear-armed. Uh, nation in the Middle East, and that's what the United States wants for it too. The fact that, as you mentioned, uh, Iran has no intention of creating nuclear weapons, it can, it can do so. It, they, they said they have the technology to do it, but they're not going to do it. That isn't what's important. What's important is that to the United States and Israel is that Iran is not bowing down to them, is not uh, joining the uh, so-called Abraham Accords and Uh, reaching out a hand uh, diplomatically to Israel. So it must be destroyed. And this is the excuse that those two warmongering nations are using to plot against Iran.
2: Well, you know, to me, I'm I'm 100 percent with you. And here's what I think. If you look at China, right, the rise of China, the the U.S. has said, Xinjiang, you've got slave labor. The U.N. Uh, representative went there and said no sign of it. And they said, ah, the U.N. representative doesn't know what she's talking about. She's a China puppet, right? Um, there was a tennis player, Ping Shui, I think her name was. Oh, she's being abused by the Chinese. She came out and said no. And then it's Iran. It's one allegation after the other. Now there's Russia. Novichok, why they're rubbing Novichok on everybody's doorknob, killing us all, right? It is just allegation after allegation, but it's exactly what you said. What you find consistent is this. These countries are rising powers, and all someone needs to do is read from 2001 the Wolfowitz Doctrine, and they will understand that the U.S. is simply trying to stop any rising power in the world, and they will tell any lie that needs to be to the American people to justify these types of illegal international aggressions. Your thoughts, Robert?
4: We, we remember the, uh, when Colin Powell went before the United Nations and said that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction and is going to destroy the United States. And President George Bush at the time told the American people that they were all in danger. And so they invaded uh, Iraq in this so-called preemptive strike. Iraq had no such weapons, had no weapons of mass destruction. It was in no way threatening the United States. But, of course, Iraq did have oil, and that's what the United States wants wanted then is what the United States wants now, among other things. So people forget that the US government continually tells these lies, starts these illegal, immoral wars that kill from hundreds of thousands to millions of people, innocent men, women and children, and yet the US government does it again and again and the people of the US keep keep accepting it and supporting it. And and this What they don't realize with Iran is that this would not be an easy, quick victory as Iraq was. Iran is not Iraq. It is a powerful nation that has powerful allies. It would be a catastrophe for the Middle East and the rest of the world if Israel or the U.S. were to invade Iran.
0: And to that point, here's what Chris Hedges writes. A war with Iran would be a catastrophe of unimaginable proportions. It would spread swiftly throughout the region. The Shiites across the Middle East would see an attack on Iran as a religious war against Shiism. The two million Shiites in Saudi Arabia concentrated in the oil-rich eastern province— Uh, would join the fight against the U.S. and Israel. Iran would use its Chinese-supplied anti-ship missiles, rocket and bomb-equipped speedboats, submarines, mines, drones, coastal artillery. Iranian oil, which makes up 13% of the world's energy supply, would be taken off the market. Those are just some examples of the catastrophe that would beset the world if the United States and Israel were to engage in a strike against Iran,
4: yes. And what the United States and Israel don't want to consider is the fact that it would impact negatively impact those two nations greatly. Uh, the price of oil certainly would skyrocket, uh, and and there would be uh, 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 there would be disruptions in shipping of all kinds of goods and, and supplies. Uh, not to mention the amount of death that this would cause in. Uh, in Iran, Israel, uh, U.S. soldiers would die uh, in Saudi Arabia as, as uh, Shiites rise up against, uh, against this war and against their own government, which w- would certainly happen because the Saudi government would probably sit it out, but uh, people wouldn't want that. It would, be, it would be just catastrophic in so many different ways, as, as Chris Hedges points out uh, in his article. This is not something that Israel and the United States can afford to do.
2: Yeah. You know, and and looking at this right now, if you look at the Biden team, remember, he said he's bringing back diplomacy. He's returning normalcy to America. Oh, we're going to be so much better off. But now that Trump is gone and we see them now on the precipice of war with Russia, providing all kinds of weapons and all of this stuff uh, 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 against Russia uh, with Ukraine and fighting to stop any hope of a diplomatic resolution. You see them sailing ships and sending missiles and senators every other day to Taiwan right on the edge of a war with Taiwan. You see them now plotting uh, against Iran. This Biden administration flock of neocons may be the most dangerous um, administration, not just that the U.S. has ever seen, that the world has ever seen, because they are flirting with confrontation with nuclear powers. Yes. And the the danger that the world faces now,
4: will face now due to the Biden administration and his Mm -hmm. decisions, is really unparalleled. As you said, uh, antagonizing nuclear, uh, nuclear armed nations, uh, China and Russia, not looking at diplomatic solutions, even the 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 potential war with Iran. I see U.S. media saying how the other signatories to the JCPOA are looking to bring Iran back into compliance with, with the agreement. Why aren't they looking to bring the United States back into compliance with the agreement? If the United States had violated it, and now as a result of that violation, the United States is facing potentially another war in addition to its antagonisms of China, its hostilities towards Russia. Uh, it's just, it's around the world, the United States flexing its muscle not recognize that that muscle isn't nearly as strong as it used to be and that its opponents are not nearly as weak as they used to be.
0: And following along to Garland's point, it really seems as though this current batch of neocons are much more ideologically driven. I remember talking to K.J. No about Henry Kissinger and his warmongering proclivities. And one of the things that KJ pointed out to me was that Kissinger was at least a realist. These folks don't seem to have any real grasp of reality. They seem to be so much more driven by ideology and a hubris or arrogance that is blinding them to the realities that are right before their very eyes. Yes, and this is a, a holdover, even though all the, the
4: names are different. It's a holdover from the Trump administration, which didn't look at consequences, only looked at ideology, and it was very bizarre during, during Trump's years. But uh, Biden, and his, Biden is a Zionist. Uh, Blinken is certainly a, a, a Zionist. Well, they're both avowed Zionists, mm-hmm. so they're looking to, at Israel as the promised land and all this, which is nonsense. And will do whatever it is that Israel wants done. So that, that's that's why the Iran confrontation is is in the works. Uh, but also the idea that China is uh, as a communist nation, it's, it's repressive. It's uh, it's deadly, it's brutal. Uh, yeah, China has its problems, but U.S. government officials should be looking at the problems, the severe problems in the United States before they try to solve anybody else's. Look at the racism in the United States, the, uh, the, the murders of black men, women, and children by the mainly white police officers, murders with, with impunity, the poverty in the United States, the crime in the United States, the number of people incarcerated. These are issues that the United States should be worrying about. Don't worry about what's happening in China. Certainly, uh, if diplomatic measures can be taken to ease suffering people there, yes, that should be done. But the United States has enough problems of its own that it's ignoring and that it continues to cause. It's got enough work to do with its own borders.
2: You know, you tend to think, I'm cynical, this debacle in Ukraine that's going the opposite of the way they wanted, everything's falling apart. It's almost they're like, okay, well, why don't we just look over here instead? We're not going to. You know what I mean? It's like, let's change it. Oh, yeah, we're going to win in Ukraine. Oh, crap. That ain't working out. Hey, uh, it looks like we can have a war in Iran.
0: We can get a war after all. Maybe we can win this one. We lost in Afghanistan. And so Ukraine became Afghanistan part two. Yeah. And now it's from debacle to
2: another, from one debacle to the next. Your thoughts. We've got about a minute and a half.
4: There's no learning from history. The U.S. should have learned from Vietnam. The U.S. should have learned from Afghanistan. You U.S. should have learned from so many, so many of its imperial disasters and misadventions, how it has overthrown governments and gone to war, not accomplished anything for the people in those countries, and— in the long run, not a compensation for the United States, and often in the short run. But military uh, contractors are all pleased with war because it's more sales for them, and their lobbyists support Congress, congressional elections, and those Congress people are not going to vote against them.
0: Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
4: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate uh, your the questions and the the topics that you bring up in your program.
0: Thank you, Robert. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, said yesterday he gave a letter to President Biden where he defended Assange's innocence and renewed a previous offer of asylum, to the WikiLeaks founder. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikonen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Good to be here. Well, I would say that this is much-needed international attention and that it's an incredibly positive thing for AMLO to have uh, sent this letter to Biden and to have made it public don't know that it's going to impact the outcome, but, uh, this is a very positive indication. I I agree.
8: Um, I was a little, I was a little weirded out when he had made the same offer, uh, immediately after Julian's extradition was denied originally back in January of 2021 because he made it before they had determined whether or not they were going to bond him out and that was cited as one of the reasons why they didn't uh why they withheld bail was because he had just received an offer uh, of asylum but at this juncture i think it's critical for not only omlo but any other leader in any other country to not only offer asylum or protection, but general support and to say as a matter of course that charging a journalist or a publisher with espionage is something that uh, completely violates every tenet uh, of the press, of free expression, of free speech.
2: And one of the things that I always bring up, is, uh, uh, and I think it's important I'd like to get your comment on, is the um, the fact that the prosecution has admitted that they spied on Assange um, in meeting with his def- with his with his defensive team, and I-, I can't imagine any court wherein the prosecution admits to spying on the defense's meeting with their client, and that doesn't get thrown out immediately. That should that's it. That should be game over. No, nah, sorry, you can't do that. And I think it's um
0: I think that's an important issue. And the country that you're going to extradite him to that has said, "Oh, we also thought about trying to assassinate him." That doesn't help any either. But trust us, we'll look (laughs) out for him when he he gets here. We're not going to subject him to any type of extrajudicial. that was the old me. That's
2: what they said. That was the old me. We're not
0: living (laughs) that life anymore.
8: Uh, (laughs) uh, Your thoughts? (laughs) Well, if you need any kind of example of the the continuity of government, the the all enduring unelected bureaucracy that determines how policy works, you you just look at Julian Assange. You would think that as just a general thumb in the eye to all of the Trump, you know, to all of the Trump people, and to distance themselves from Donald Trump. The Biden administration would be jumping at the opportunity to go, look, okay, okay, maybe maybe we headed into it on the word of the Justice Department. We weren't really listening to Donald Trump, but Mike Pompeo is being hauled in front of a Spanish court right now for plotting the assassination of a journalist or trying to kidnap him while they were bugging the room where he had political asylum as a target of a hostile government we're going to pump the brakes on this because we're not that administration. But no, the Biden administration, Anthony Blinken come out and they say nice things about the, the free press and nice things about trying to defend freedom of speech while they're openly trying to extradite and throw in a hole for 175 years. The one journalist that's never had to redact anything.
0: Amlo says, I left a letter to the president about Assange explaining that he did not commit any serious crime. He did not cause anyone's death, did not violate any human rights and that he exercised his freedom and that he and that arresting him would mean a permanent affront to freedom of expression. He also said that Assange is the best journalist of our time. That's that's incredible. Again, that's incredibly Powerful, and I, I'm I'm almost at a loss of of what to say in terms of how irresponsible and how negligent domestic media is in relation to this. And what would be nice is if Amlo could generate more support from other Southern Global South uh, heads of state.
8: Well, this is something that I think can happen because uh, just a a month or so ago at the uh, at the Tijuana border, there was the uh, the counter to Joe Biden's summit for the Americas and that uh, a border demonstration there. uh, Julian Assange was made part of of the central focus of that protest. So there are people who are are very 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 much in support of wikileaks of julian assange of scientific journalism of the idea that there should be transparency for the powerful while the powerless have privacy the, the these are things that you know most of these nation states are you know, agreeing upon without even having to be prompted to do it's the follow through that uh that we need to get so maybe Going and telling Joe Biden to his face, you should tear down the Statue of Liberty if you don't halt the extradition of Julian Assange, will be enough to get these uh, these other leaders to step forward. They've got the wind at their sails, and they've got uh, they've got both Russia and China at their back too. Both nations have also said, "What are you doing with with Julian Assange? What you, why?" Why is this a thing and how dare you criticize any other country for what they do to their journalists as long as you're holding this man? Kelly
2: Tronter has an interesting article that's in um, Consortium News Inside Australia's Assange Game Plan um, Kelly Tronter reports on the labor government's secret planning to act on the WikiLeaks founders case without offending the U.S. keeping in mind for those who don't know, in 1975 the United States overthrew the government of Australia and replaced the prime minister in case anybody wasn't sure, they, they enlisted the help of the, if I'm not mistaken, I think MI6 and the Queen of England. At any rate your thoughts on australia
8: you know i it's kind of difficult reading this and it was it was weird looking through uh the freedom of information request that declassified australia was able to get or it uh, provides a lot of the the bulk of the text for this article um i highly recommend everybody go and take a look at it because it will give you kind of the idea uh of The the truly like flaccidity that Australia has in this, they disclose that uh, because the U.S. and the U.K. have a binding extradition treaty, Australia can't be a party. Australia itself can't step in and interrupt. They can't put a halt to it that way. Their recourse is to have Julian apply for. Uh, the ability to serve out his sentence in his home country i can 't remember the acronym for the program offhand. Um, but it seems like this is sort of the route that they 're trying to go where it 's not so much let 's stop the intervention uh, or stop the intervention, stop the extradition but let's uh, le- let 's see if we can at least get him to serve out you know the remainder of his hundred and seventy five year term. Uh, in in sunny Australia,
0: the more we talk about this, the the, the more frustrating it, it becomes. So where does he stand now? I know that uh, Vanessa Barrester uh, has be, has signed the extradition warrant, or or um, so. Is he does he still have another appeal left, or? Are they are they warming up the plane on the tarmac? Where does he stand right now?
8: Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the appeal has been filed. Uh, Home Secretary Preeti Patel, and, and no wait, is she even? Does she even still have a job? Is she even still there? I, I honestly don't know. The the whole the entire British cabinet resigned.
0: And it was Patel. I, I said barrister. It was Patel. Is the name that I was trying to come up with in terms of the the, the extradition warrant.
8: Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The home secretary. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely being serious. I, I, I don't know I he resigned in the whole Boris Johnson thing or not, um, but uh, but that's the appeal was filed, I believe, before the entire U.K. cabinet quit. Um, so I honestly don't know, because I can't tell you with any certainty whether or not there's a sitting home secretary, whether or not there's anybody in the U.K., government that can process an extradition because their their cabinet seems to be in a bit of a, a time. I mean, I'm sure they've got functionaries to push paper, but uh, appeal submitted waiting on a final determination from that.
2: Yeah, but I kind of feel like because this is law fair anyway, that if, Biden, uh, if Biden's team just calls over to the U.K. and says, look, uh, we don't care who's in charge. Somebody signed a document, and put them on a boat that that um, the UK and let's face it, the European leaders. I mean, anytime you will tank your own economy just by somebody giving you the order, I don't think that there needs to be anything technical and professional done to make it happen. If uh, Biden gives the order, your thoughts.
8: No, you're I mean, the, you, you're right. And we don't even know ultimately whose signature needs to be on the final approval paperwork. So it could just be a random functionary that is filing and processing. And that's how the death of journalism goes. Uh, what what I think is critical it, is that the wonderful people who have been putting a ton of pressure on the UK parliament at, uh, over there in London continue to do so. But uh, that if there are any people who are involved in the Assange movement in the U S at, at the, uh, like Assange defense level, um, it, we really need to focus on what's going to happen when Julian Assange is brought here. It's the it, it's, it, The Biden, Garland's right. The Biden administration has to snap their fingers and he could be on a plane. So um, in light of that, uh, we need to focus on what we can do in terms of jury nullification, in terms of actually putting pressure, not just on the occasional representative who has a bright spark and the opportunity to say something for a fundraiser once about Julian Assange, but pressure like they're doing at Merrick Garland's house every week, Uh, like people have been in Piccadilly Circus in London. It's going to happen here, so we need to start acting like it.
0: There was an interesting point in this um, Consortium News piece. Greg Barnes, the advisor to the Australian Assange campaign, said that one of the problems as it relates to Australia and Assange is that the United States is attempting extraterritorial use of its Espionage Act, and if Australia were to sanction a deal whereby Assange pled guilty in exchange for his being returned to Australia, that that would endorse this extraterritorial use of the U.S. Espionage Act. Is that an excuse for inaction, or is that a valid consideration by those in Australia? We have about a minute.
8: It's a valid consideration. However, I, again, Garland's correct on this one. The U.S. has is is proved that this is lawfare. So if Australia doesn't attempt to do something loudly and publicly, they will likely lose the opportunity to even concede the point in the first place. I, I don't really know what else to say other than say something louder, better than what you're doing, Albo. Uh,
0: Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
8: Oh, Thank you very much.
0: Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back. And you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Patrick Lawrence has a piece in Consortium News, The Imaginary War. It began when the Biden regime and the press misrepresented Russian aims in Ukraine. All else has flowed from it. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back.
9: Thanks for
0: having me. So Patrick Lawrence writes, what are the policy—what were the policy clicks, the intelligence community and the press that serves both going to do when the kind of war in Ukraine they talked incessantly about turned out to be imaginary, a Marvel comics of a conflict with little grounded in reality? Your thoughts, Ted Rowe Well, you
9: know, uh, I've written— over 20 books, and a lot of them have been reviewed by book critics. And often uh, the book critic uh, ends up giving me a negative review because I didn't write the book that they wanted me to write, as opposed to the book that I was trying to write. Uh, in the war uh, in Ukraine, uh, you know, Russia had war aims. They were very clearly stated uh, by President Putin. And uh, the West kind of ignored and pretended like they didn't exist and set up. Uh, sort of a, a, a fake metric of things that uh, Russia was supposedly trying to achieve. And then when they failed to achieve these things that, you know, Russia never said or indicated it or implied it was trying to achieve, said that somehow Russia was losing the war and was failing. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a, it's, it's ridiculous. And, uh, you know, obviously now it's pretty clear that Russia has. For those who, you know, bothered to pay attention to, uh, you know, Russia's aims, it's pretty clear that Russia has pretty much achieved them. So it's, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, we're seeing sort of a split in the in the uh, uh, media classes between those who uh, can sort of see reality and those who can't. But in the meantime, you know, we have this absurdity of judging Russia by a metric that they never asked or said that they would they should be judged by.
2: It. Well, you know, Ted, the other thing is this just some of these assertions seemed frantic. It seemed like, you know, somebody who's yelling out of breath. They're trying to they're going to at one point, remember this. He wants to rebuild the Soviet Union. So they're going to take after he gets finished with Ukraine, it's off to Poland and Germany and the UK, all of them. You know, and so they would just make these wild, hair-brained assertions of what um Putin wanted to do and never really talk about what was going on other than to say oh by the way they're losing. Here's the other thing I don't understand. They're losing, they're running out of missiles, their people are being wiped out, their plans aren't working. How are they winning this war based on everything I'm reading in the New York Times and the Guardian when they're losing in in every metric that you could judge a war?
9: Yeah, no, it's uh it's it's really crazy. You know, um you know how I know that uh, Putin's not trying to put the team back together in terms of the old USSR because he could have certain uh, former Soviet republics for free. Um, there's uh, certain Central Asian republics that were that are oil and gas rich. They were tossed out of the Russian Federation uh, at the end of the Cold War, and they and many of their populations would be happy to have rejoined uh, a, you know a unified Russia, sort of a half USSR. And, you know, Putin has never had any interest in that at all. So if he's not willing to take back former Soviet republics that would voluntarily come back, why would the war in Ukraine, being a difficult military operation, why would that be part of some kind of grandiose scheme when there's no indication that he would even do that where no effort is involved?
0: He writes the the Russian president, whose entire argument with the West is that a just and stable order in Europe must uh, serve the security interests of all sides, was simply restating restating objectives the transatlantic alliance had once signed on to accomplish, and it's hard to argue with the position that bringing more missiles pointed at my country is making me very uncomfortable and I'd appreciate it if you would stop. That's that's hard to uh, that's hard to argue with, uh, particularly understanding the broader historic context in which those statements are made. And in many instances, it's that broader historic context that has totally been
9: ignored. It's been totally ignored. I mean, uh, you know, most notably, the greatest land invasion that caused the greatest number of deaths in any conflict in human history was the German invasion of Russia in the summer of 1941, and it went through Ukraine. So if Russia is a little bit worried about that border, you can't really be surprised. And you can also look at what the United States does when it's feeling uncomfortable Uh, when there's missiles pointed at it from nearby. That was called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, We didn't take it kindly. Uh, You can only imagine what would have happened during the Cold War if the Warsaw Pact had attempted to recruit uh, Mexico or Canada right along the U.S. border. Uh, That would not have been tolerated, to say the least. It might have caused World War III. So, you know, for the, the inability... Or unwillingness of American media commentators to point out that Russia's not doing anything that the United States would not do, and then some, uh, is just you know, I mean, it's it's transparent and it's ridiculous.
2: And uh, the other thing that you look at here is that <clears throat> ultimately. For all the um, media hype that we get, we're eventually—and, you know, the results had to show themselves. I can say, talk all I want forever. The Russians are losing, blah, blah, blah. But at some point, reality asserts itself, as Paul Jay often said. uh, Reality asserts itself. And one of the areas— Or you got to look at the scoreboard. How about that? And one of the areas—it's the other um, article that we gave you. One of the er principal areas, because this is a war uh, proxy war that's kinetic, but there's also an economic war of attrition, and things are not looking good for Europe in this economic war of attrition, and that's where reality is really asserting itself. Um, Recently, Josette Burrell came out and said, hold tight on this, because on these uh, sanctions, because sooner or later, it's going to work for Russia. Well, it ain't working for Europe, and it's sooner. Ted?
9: Well, you know, uh, the record of sanctions in general— in terms of changing the behavior of foreign countries is a a dismal one, to say the least. Uh, You know, definition of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting different results. Look at how well we did at overthrowing the government of Cuba that way over the last 40-plus years. Um, And But Russia also saw this coming. They insulated their economy a long time ago. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, the only surprise here is just how quickly... Uh, These sanctions are turning around and really affecting uh, Western Europe and Eastern, well, Europe and, you know, the West in general and the U.S. much more quickly than you would have anticipated. I mean, just think how bad it is now. It's summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, You know, soon it's going to be winter. Uh, Energy costs, energy consumption is going to shoot way up. Uh, you know, it's expected to be a cold winter. It's going to be rough for, especially Eastern Europe. Uh, I think they're, you know, President, they, President Putin is playing the long game as non-Americans generally do, and you know he knows who's going to blink first, and it's got to be the West.
0: And in this uh, in this piece, Dave DeCamp in Antiwar.com, dot com, Europe facing major economic crisis from sanctions campaign against Russia. Uh, he says, first of all, the U.S.-led sanctions campaign has done nothing to stop the war in Ukraine or hurt Putin. He goes on to say uh, Germany and other European nations are preparing to ration gas for the coming winter. Uh, the Russia is making more profit from oil sales than before the war. And the euro has reached a 20-year low against the dollar. Inflation is at a record high of 8.6 percent. And economists are predicting a recession if the EU is cut off from Russian gas. These aren't opinions. These are numbers. This is the data. This is the reality. And so no no matter how Avril Avril Haines or, or Joe Biden or Tony Blinken tries to spin this, there are certain realities that have to be
9: addressed. Well, maybe they don't have to be addressed as we're seeing uh, in uh, corporate media. It, generally, they're like, la, 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 we can't see this, we can't hear this, we're ignoring it. Um, you know, parenthetically, in terms of the execution of American led sanctions, I always wondered how they think that they would ever work, considering that they don't ever say, okay, we will impose these sanctions, but if you do this or that or the other, we will take, we will. Stop them. I mean, you know, for example, with the Ukraine conflict, the West has never said to Russia, "We would get rid of these sanctions if you were to withdraw from Ukraine." They just they just slap on the sanctions, and then they sit there, and uh, there's no, you know, there's no sort of negotiating or setting or setting of demands or anything. I mean, it's not only a thing that's not working; it's not a thing that could work. In fact, Joseph Burrell said, I think
0: it was Friday. That even when the war ends, the sanctions aren't going
2: to was, was it Schultz Olaf Scholz that said yeah. that?
0: OK. Olaf Scholz said on Friday that even when the war ends, the sanctions aren't going to be lifted, which prompted the question. A, what's the point of the sanctions? And then B, if that's the reality that they're stating, what's Russia's motivation for for stopping the war?
9: Yeah, Russia's not stupid. They they know that they don't have any incentive to pay any attention to the sanctions at all. First of all, the sanctions aren't hitting them nearly as hard as uh, people in the media would like you to believe. And anyway, and even if they were, uh, there's no indication or evidence that the U.S. would ever stop them. So, uh, you know, under any circumstance, so uh, you know, even if Russia were to go go home, so it's a completely ridiculous. Um, You know, it's it's very American. You know, Uh, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, That is that is American foreign policy in a nutshell. There's no negotiating and they don't get how other they don't put themselves into the mindset of the people they're trying to deal with, negotiate with pressure or whatever.
2: Yeah, because the term is strategic empathy. Your adversary, you need to understand what they're thinking. You need to know what their motivations are. Whereas what we do here is we create some motivations and then we say, yeah, that's what they want. But it's just some self-serving crap. 30 seconds, uh, one minute.
9: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's very basic that uh, if you have an adversary or an enemy and you don't respect your enemy, and that doesn't mean you have to like them. But it means that you have to understand that they have power, they have, they come from a mindset, and you need to study it. You got to understand your enemy better than you understand yourself. If you do, you might have a shot. But you know, we don't stand, we don't stand a chance.
0: Thank you, Ted Rawl. And and as we get out, when you look at the sanctions on Venezuela, the United States goes to Maduro with hat in hand, begging for oil, but the, the United States doesn't lead with. We're relieving these sanctions. Same thing with Iran. They did the JCPOA. Not all of the sanctions were lifted. So Vladimir Putin has an awful lot of history uh, to reflect upon in order to understand what the United States strategy is. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.